Live from the Nasdaq market site overlooking New York City at Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Dami, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, and Dan Nathan. Tonight on Fast, GE heads to Splitsville, the industrial giant breaking into three separate companies. But will the breakup unlock real value for investors? We'll debate that straight ahead. Plus, we are tracking the after-hours action in shares of Coinbase. The stock is down 9.5% right now in earnings. The company's call kicking off in less than 30 minutes. We're dialing in. We're ready to bring you all the big headlines. And later, Tesla takes another tumble. The stock's skidding nearly 12% today. We'll tell you what sent shares into reverse. But we start off with a countdown to one of the biggest IPOs of the year. Rivian about to price. Shares begin trading tomorrow. Let's get straight to Phil LeBeau with all the details. Phil. Hey, Melissa, here's the latest on pricing. And by the way, most on Wall Street who I've talked with have said, do not be surprised if you see this price at the high end of the range. And also if you see this stock run tomorrow once the trading begins. So the expectation that was set by the company, $72 to $74 a share. Remember, it was originally $57 to $62 a share. 135 million shares, a valuation of up to $65 billion for Rivian. By the way, the proceeds from this will top $8 billion. At least that's the expectation right now. I want to show you two stocks that people are going to be focused on as Rivian starts to trade. We're talking about Ford and Amazon. And what we're showing you are these shares back at the beginning of 2019. That's when Amazon, as well as Ford, within a couple of months of each other, both made substantial investments in Rivian. At the time, I think Ford's initial investment was a half million dollars. Well, now... Amazon owns 20% of Rivian. That's its stake in Rivian. Ford owns 12%. Amazon has already indicated in the latest S1, Melissa, they're doubling down. They, They have said they will likely buy more shares. Meanwhile, Ford, while it had a close relationship with Rivian, uh, back when they first made an initial investment, there was a board member. Rivian's uh, uh, platform was going to be the platform for uh, Ford's EVs. That's not the case anymore. They no longer have a, a seat on the board of Rivian. They do not uh, have Rivian's platform as their platform for electric vehicles. So it'll be interesting to see whether or not Ford cashes out at some point and says, look, we're going to get 7 or $8 billion out of this IPO, which is a nice payoff on a half-million-dollar initial investment, half-billion initial investment. So those are the two stocks that people will be talking about. And, again, we're waiting for that pricing for the IPO, and Rivian starts trading tomorrow on the NASDAQ. Um, Phil, just quickly, what's the thinking behind Ford distancing itself as opposed to embracing the relationship and leveraging that more as they expand into EVs? That's been going on for some time, Melissa, and that started, you know, a while ago when they made the decision that they were not going to have the board seat. Uh, They gave that up, and they also made the decision that they were going to do it themselves, that they were not going to use the platform for the R1T truck as well as uh, everything else that Rivian was working on, that they felt they could do it better on their own. Um, So it's not an an acrimonious relationship between Ford and Rivian. It's just that they decided we're going to go in this direction. So that's why many people are watching, hey, does Ford ultimately say congratulations on the IPO? This has been a nice payoff. Uh, or do they at some point in the future, Melissa, say, yeah, maybe we should work a little closer with R.J. Scaringe and his team? Right. Phil, thanks. Keep us posted on the pricing when it comes. Phil LeBeau in Chicago for us. What do we make of this IPO? I mean, there's so many ways to go at it, Karen, in terms of what it might say about where we are in the markets, about what it might say about <laughs> the EV space itself. If, if given to you at 72 bucks a share, Karen, or if you had the opportunity to buy it, uh-huh. would you grab that opportunity? Do I have the opportunity to sell it shortly thereafter? Then yes, I would. 
<laughs> I just think that, I mean, there's going to be so much hype around this. I think, you know, uh, just the dynamics of the way an offering goes, you can't really short stock at the beginning. And, you know, the uh, it's got so many buzzwords and, uh, you know, the truck looks really cool. Um, as Packy was saying last night, you know, they, they're just raving about how great the truck is. So, yes, I would is the short answer. Valuation <laughs> be damned. Maybe the hype is deserved. I mean, if everybody's coming out with great reviews for this thing and the field is wide open for this kind of SUV because there isn't another offering that will compete directly with it, Guy, maybe it's could it be that the hype is warranted? In this case, I think the answer is yes. Karen mentioned Packy, PMAC, as I call him. Um, but, yeah, he talked about it in glowing fashion. <laughs> and I think the hype is deserved. You know, if you read over the last couple of weeks, people say this will be the most talked about, most important IPO of 2021, and that's probably going to be the case. Karen's right if she has the opportunity to sell it. But this is one of those things that, you know, can be indicated 7275, and you could open significantly higher than that. And Phil was just talking about a $65 billion valuation at those levels. It's reasonable to think it will trade at a valuation <laughs> north of Ford's, which is currently $80 billion. I mean, that's just the world we live in. With that said, you know, I don't know how you trade Rivian necessarily, but we've been pretty steadfast, Tim and Karen specifically, about Ford. And maybe today was a short-term capitulation day, given the volume, traded north of about 150 million shares in Ford. But I still think there's room to the upside. Yeah, we don't know how it's going to trade at the open. That's always the, the big, you know, unknown out there <laughs> the next day. That's what makes it so exciting. At the same time, what we do know is that there is a love right now for EVs in the EV space, as we've seen with Tesla and the others. And there is a love for green investing, for ESG investing, Tim. And are those two um, tailwinds enough, at least, to sort of bridge that gap between now and the time when Rivian actually starts to deliver? In the current market environment, yes, Mel. You have a dynamic where investors are, are very willing to buy into hyper-growth secular stories uh, in a market where liquidity has pushed people out risk curves. Uh, the investment themes around EV, ESG, uh, look, this is a disruptor company in a disruptive sector by, by definition, but they're a disruptor relative to other EV players. And, and I think if you think about their approach as much on uh, you know, transportation as a service and focus on mobility and focus on fleets. And, and I'm, I'm quoting a, a research piece from Pickering Energy, Stan Spretner, saying something along the lines of um, they're more driven to uh, total miles driven by fleets than personal miles driven. They look to disrupt the entire EV space and, and change the consumption trends more towards, uh, again, a, a service than it is a personally owned vehicle. Um, that combined with the technology and the quality of the product, and, and, and let's face it, I, I mean, the, the Amazon uh, you know, kind of lineage here, or at least the relationship, is, is one that um, the companies have similar way of thinking about, about growth and, and about how I think they approach their respective spaces. So again, I think Rivian is more than just a, a shiny object in the middle of what's been a, an EV story gone wild. Um, and, and I think that there's still a lot to prove here, um, but the valuation is such that relative to other stories and what people have been willing to pay for, you know who, um, I think you know, the valuation is going to hold up and I think it's going to go higher. It's definitely got a strong partner in Amazon, even if Ford decides to walk away. Amazon wants to buy more of the offering. They've already said that, as Phil had mentioned, and, and Amazon's giving them on a silver platter an order right off the bat, Dan. Big order for a fleet. 
Yeah, and they got a big order from me after reading Packy's note last week. I put I put in an order for one of those R1s's. That's the SUV that's supposed to come out um, next year. So they are shipping cars. I mean, listen, it's going to be a hard one. I think these guys are right. I mean, wherever it's priced tomorrow morning, even if we have a red tape, it's going to be opening up a great deal more. One of the reasons why companies like this go public, they sell products to consumers. Obviously, that van right there that you see is going into the enterprise, and that's a big opportunity for them. But this is also a big branding event, right? And so the more people that find out about this stock that's going to trade likely very well, the more people find out about their products. I saw one of the R1Ts on the road today on Fifth Avenue in New York City. I got to look into it. I got to play around in it. Um, it's pretty cool. It does not look like the Ford F-150 Lightning that's coming out. It's just a different ball of wax. So listen, I think the good opportunity is the deal is done. It's being allocated to some very large holders existing, some new large holders. Valuation is going to be the thing that's going to be a moving target for years to come. Retail's going to get involved. It's going to be volatile. All you have to do is look at the 10, 11 year history of Tesla. And we are still in the first inning of this EV story. So I think that's the main point here. We're going to all have opportunities to buy into this story at low, lower levels at some point, though, also. Upper right square has a question. Tim Seymour, you have your hand up. Yes. Speaking of buying it, I'm just curious. I mean, Dan, Dan, do you have the biggest garage in New York City? Because every time we have a new car offering out there, you've put in an order. I mean, this is like the fifth car he's talked about he's put an order in on. One, I bought the Ford Mustang Mach-E. I put a pre-order in it. I thought it looked cool, and I own it, and I'm driving it, and I will probably get this R1S when it comes out. But here's a bull case for this story. Right now, Tesla, they have their standard for charging, and it's built out pretty well all over the country. And then there's everybody else, and then there's this infrastructure plan, and everyone else is going to have to work on their own standard. And if that starts to get built out in a meaningful way, that's going to be a huge competitive edge versus Tesla. And I know that 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 competitive story has been a pillar of the bear case, and it hasn't worked. Well, it's all coming right now. And here's a shiny new package, and the Lucid is a shiny new package. And then when you get Detroit in the mix, and then when you get the Germans in the mix, then you get the South Koreans in the mix, and then you get the Japanese in the mix, it's coming. Quick question here before we move on to Coinbase, because we do want to get to that big drop in the after-hour session. Are the other EV stocks sources of funds for Rivian buying? Guy Dami, what do you think? We talked about that last week. You brought that up. It was a great question. And I thought it would be in the form of Tesla. And then Tesla proceeded to go from, I think, 1120 to 1240 or so. So that seemingly lasted for about four or five hours. But I do think to a certain extent, uh, the Tesla sell-off today, in my opinion only, I think that's part of it for sure. I think it's a source of funds absolutely in terms of where it's going in the form of Rivian. All right, let's get to coin now. Shares, as I mentioned, dropping in the after-hour session down um, by just under 10% or so. Kate Rooney's got the details. Kate. Hey, Melissa. Coinbase with a miss on revenue thanks to a sharp slowdown in trading activity. Trading volume fell 29% from the prior quarter to $327 billion. Coinbase says this was due to softer crypto market conditions driven by low volatility and declining crypto asset prices. Monthly transacting users, meanwhile, MTUs, also down by about 1.4 million in the quarter, but still more than tripling from last year. Verified users did grow to 73 million. That was up about 5 million from the end of June. Coinbase does not disclose what we call the take rate, but analysts calculate that separately. Mizuho's numbers coming in at 1.1% for the take rate. That was down one point, from 1.3% in the uh, quarter before in Q2. That's essentially the percentage 
of each transaction Coinbase gets to keep as revenue. This metric is really key as competition grows in the crypto trading space and some worry about fee compression. And in the release, guys, Coinbase says, quote, as our year to date results have clearly demonstrated our business is volatile. Coinbase is not a quarter to quarter investment, but rather a long term investment in the growth of the crypto economy. So really laying out the bull case there and pointing out that market conditions have improved meaningfully. And they did so later in the quarter. Coinbase says that has continued into early Q4. Subscription and services revenue also grew 41 percent. And the value of assets on the platform jumped to $255 billion. That was up from $180 billion at the end of June. More than half of that, meanwhile, coming from institutional investors. Well, a call kicking off at 5.30 Eastern. We'll bring you any headlines. Back to you. All right, Kate. Thanks a lot. Kate Rooney down 11 percent right now. Karen, what did you make of this quarter? I think, well, the revenue was disappointing. If you read the shareholder letter, they sort of make a lot of, listen, we're going to have a very sort of lumpy revenue stream, but don't worry, revenue's up big for this quarter, uh, going at, you know, the start of this fourth quarter. So I, I kind of believe them, though. I, I think, you know, as the, it will be lumpy. But I also think in the land grab that they're in a really good spot. So valuation's rich, but it deserves to be rich. And I think that uh, they, they also had uh, an improvement, I think, in subscription um, and services, which is staking and some other things, and that's decent revenue for them. So I didn't think the quarter was that bad. I think what happened was it was up maybe $100 in the three weeks prior to the announcement of the quarter. So if they had announced a month ago, I think it would have been fine. So it just got overbought. But I think they're in a really interesting position. Instead, I own Bitcoin, though. To invoke a term used by Brian Kelly, is this sort of investment that you put in a drawer and leave it there because it is so lumpy and you are really looking for the transition to more institutional business as opposed to the retail side of the business, Tim? I, I think so. And, and look at where we are in 4Q already. October trends are up 70 percent over 3Q. And, and I think this is the story here. And, you know, the, the lag effect that I, I think we flagged here to where Coinbase was relative to, to Bitcoin. So from July through you know, October, it really, really lagged. Um, Bitcoin's up 130 percent from July. Uh, it's up about 65. But from October 1 to today, Bitcoin up 55 percent, Coinbase up 55%. I think part of the disappointment here is that they underperformed their peer group in the third quarter. And, and that's really what this is about. If you worry about Coinbase, I do not. You worry about them because Square and PayPal are giving it, you know, basically they're all about engagement. Uh, there really is not a fee element. They want to keep people on those apps, whereas Coinbase is, you know, I think there's some sensitivity to fees. I think they have a user base that will have some sensitivity to fees. And that's something they're going to have to solve. I think also this, this kind of bodes well for Hood to me. And again, these may not be great numbers for Coinbase, but again, the correlations and the fact that they're competing, uh, I think, with that demographic and, and full disclosure, I'm, I'm long hood. All right. Let's get instant reaction to Coins Quarter with Dan Dolov. He covers Coinbase and Mizuho. He joined us on the Fast Line. Dan, great to have you with us. Um, what's your take on the quarter? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I kind of agree with, uh, with the last uh, comments and with the comments from Kate Rooney earlier. I, I think this was a pretty bad quarter. And, and it all comes down to, as I said, all comes down to the yield, the take rate, right? Um, Robinhood, we're long Robinhood as well. Robinhood is giving it away for free. Uh, Coinbase is charging a lot of money to trade in and out. And what you're seeing is that the pricing pressure in crypto is coming in at a much faster pace than people were anticipating. 
And I think that's, to me, kind of the biggest bear uh, case out there. They, everything else, like the higher MTUs, they, they have no control over that. That's just the market, crypto volatility. I think the idiosyncratic stuff is more interesting, and that's the decline in take rates. Okay. What about this argument that there's a land grab going on into new markets like NFTs, et cetera, and Coinbase is, is well positioned for that? It's a great point, Melissa. But like, if I think about subscription and services, where it's kind of the big hope right now that subscription and services will kind of you know take become the majority of revenue, what you're seeing is that the incremental revenue in for subscription and services was less than the incremental revenue in Q2 versus Q1. So they're generating, even though the company's getting bigger and the overall users are getting you know more users, the incremental revenue they're generating from those services has become smaller. So I, I think there's a lot of dream to dream, but the reality is, is much harsher for Coinbase. And that's why I think the dissonance is between kind of the results and the expectations. Dan, I appreciate you coming on. Listen, uh, Mel mentioned the NFT world. Is there, a, is there a Facebook component to this that the market's not taking into consideration as well? In terms of what? What do you mean by that? Some a relationship potentially with Facebook or Meta, whatever they're calling the company these days. Uh, I mean, it's again those those. Um, I think at the end of the day, again, you know, maybe I'm, I'm I'm a minority here, but at the end of the day, I really think that you know all these partnerships, relationships. I don't think they're that they're as important as the one single thing, which is majority. You know, more than eighty percent of revenue is generated by transaction fees. And they're coming down sharply. So I think that everything else are like, and you're seeing that in the press release today, right? There are all these stories about, you know, the, the advance of crypto and all that stuff. The reality is the stock's down 11% because the results were disappointing. And, and, and that's really what's going to drive the narrative, I, I believe, for the next, like, six months. Dan, thanks for your analysis. Appreciate it. Dan Dola of, of Mizuho. Um, this has been sort of the, the concern since Coin went public, Dan, and that is that there would be fee compression, that everybody's used to zero, and you can't go on zero. You, I mean, they are depending on not being at zero very fast. Yeah, I mean, I don't think their business model operates well right now if they are at zero. Um, so they need to figure out other ways, and there are other ways to do it. You mentioned the the, the fact that they're going to do NFT um, wallets there. I think if you look at the volume over there on OpenSea, one of the largest platforms for trading of NFTs, um, you'll see that there's clearly money that's been made in the crypto markets that's now trading other things, right, other assets that they're not trading on their platform right now. And the other one I'll just tell you is Think about the people who are actively trading crypto. They're probably trying to do it on the cheapest exchanges possible, to Tim's point um, about Robinhood. That's A. And then the other one is very simple, that they're also trading Tesla options. Okay, So they didn't find crypto as interesting in Q3, but it was really fun to buy call options in Tesla that went out in the money almost every single expiration you could kind of pick. So you know, that, I think there's some of that going on right now. And so especially as you have more institutions focused on the crypto market. They're not selling. They're buying more. Um, the volatility is going to be um, compressed a little bit. All right. We've got a news alert on Apple. Let's get to Courtney Reagan for that. Court. Hi there, Melissa. Yes. So we have Alex Gorski, the CEO of Johnson & Johnson, joining the Apple board here in a release. We should note that Gorski is also on the Business Roundtable's board of directors, as well as IBM and the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. So again, Alex Gorski, the CEO of Johnson & Johnson, is now a member of the Apple board of directors. Back to you, Melissa.
Courtney, thanks. Um, Karen, you know, at first I thought, eh, you know, it's a board appointment. And then I thought, you know what, it's, it's the CEO of Johnson & Johnson, and Apple has had health ambitions. I'm, I'm just wondering how you interpret this. Right. I mean, that is interesting. I think also he's a, he's a great guy, a very popular Wharton alum. That's a good one for us. And um, I, it is interesting because as Apple wants to get into this, I think there is a lot of open space for them. And I think he's an excellent choice. Good. All right. Coming up, we are diving into three big movers from today's session. The traders are breaking down why these names were lighting up their screens. The details are next. Plus, GE is breaking up, but investors aren't heartbroken. So what does the split mean for the company? We'll trade that one in just a few. Do not go anywhere. Fast Money's back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out three of the big movers that caught our attention today. Palantir, PayPal, and Twitter are all closing in the red. Um, Tim, you flagged the move uh, on Palantir in the back of earnings. What's your take on this one? Look, valuation extraordinary. Uh, their commercial business growing uh, over 100%, very, very strong. The rest of their business growing you know, in the 40s and an outlook that says we're going to grow 30% a year between now and 2025. So, um, Look, I find the commercial business growing, the commercial customer base growing 46%, I think, year over year. I mean, that's the story. If, if, if your commercial base, which is the high, uh, you know, it's the high margin base and certainly the place we wanted to see them grow outside of some of their government contracts, et cetera, I, like, I, I think uh, this is a stock that has a difficult valuation to see growth that's a little bit less than expected. So, again, uh, the total growth outside of commercial, a little less than 30%. Um, that's the disappointment here. It's a stock that's been wildly volatile um, and I think is well positioned for the long term. I, I, I think this company is so strategically important to so many people that I think their business continues very strong. All right. Uh, PayPal, meantime, taking a dive more than 10 percent on the back of earnings last night. Guy, this is on your radar. If you had come to me last night, Mel, I would have said, you know what, Mel, I think PayPal is going to hold that March low of 225 and you buy it against that. And I would have been dead wrong. So I'm glad you didn't. We saved our viewers some money. On the backside of that, though, Dan thought this exact thing would happen, and he's spot on. I'll say this. You traded about 63 million shares today. It feels like a capitulation day, but you know what? It did not bounce once at all today, which leads me to believe this further downside. All right. And finally, Twitter launching its blue service in the U.S. today for about three bucks a month. Subscribers will be able to undo tweets, create bookmark folders, and have access to ad-free articles. Can you really undo something that happens on the interweb, Dan? Yeah, you can. And this is the moment of truth, Mel, for all those snarky tweets about undoing, you know, typos on their tweets. You can do it for $3 a month right now. I did it. I signed up. Listen, I'm excited about this. We've been talking about these opportunity for recurring revenues um, for Twitter for some time. Here it is. The stock really didn't respond. I don't think that's a huge um, surprise right here. But, you know, this company has obviously suffered from their ability to kind of better monetize their user base. This is one way um, for them to do it. I'm taking a shot on the long side here. I have been since their results. I want to use kind of 50 as a stop to the downside here. Below that, I think it gets um, kind of sloppy here. But again, this is company, or at least the stock, is unchanged on the year. It's down about 30% from the highs. There's really not a lot of things to be positive about. But this rollout could be one of those sorts of things that we might look back in a few months and say that was an inflection point. I mean, three bucks is not a lot, but it could add up to be quite a bit, Karen. I mean, I personally stand by any snark that I tweet out. I try not to tweet any snark out, but, you know, <laughs> other people might want to take it back. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think taking back is actually valuable. Um, but I, I always thought, though, I mean, you know, anyone can take a screenshot of it. But, I, you know, three bucks, I think, is an interesting price because it's not a giant commitment and you sort of won't think about it. Uh, I think it's smart. I, I try not to be smarky or typo, but sometimes I fail in both. Um, I should look into this. You're only human, like the, all, the rest of us. We've got a lot more ahead here on Fast Money. Here's what is coming up next. Breaking up is hard to do, but GE Split has investors swooning. The traders give their best relationship advice next. Plus, big gains in small caps. The Russell 2000 breaking out, and one top tech says the climb could continue. We dive into the charts to see what they say. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Let's get you caught up on some of the big after-hours earnings action. Poshmark plunging on a miss and weak guidance. That stock is now down 27%. Uh, Meantime, Wynn is pairing its losses after reporting results. The company also announcing CEO Matt Maddox is stepping down at the end of January. Meantime, DoorDash jumping even after reporting a larger-than-expected loss. And Krispy Kreme rising as revenue beats estimates. The stock is up 5.5%. Let's turn now to the news that helped shares of GE touch their highest level in more than three years today. The company announcing it is splitting up into three separate units. The aviation business, where the GE name will live on. The healthcare unit, which will spin off in 2020 and the energy unit to separate a year after that. Here's what CEO Larry Culp had to say about the strategy. I think the logic is pretty straightforward. We know looking at spins elsewhere that the focus and the accountability in a structure like this always increase. We think we have an opportunity here as well to have sharper capital allocation and more strategic flexibility. And clearly this is a good thing for the, the team's in each of the businesses. Got to go to Tim on this. Shareholder, you like this? I do. Uh, look, it makes a lot of sense. I, I think also Larry Culp's got a lot of experience doing this. He did it at Danaher. Um, I think supply chain management and understanding how to squeeze efficiencies out of businesses is something he knows how to do. I realize, you know, we speaking of snark, I mean, I, I think it's easy to be cynical and kind of uh, dismissive of GE's attempts to do various things, including a reverse uh, share split they did back when. And, and so you know, some of this seems to be only optics. But if you think about the businesses that they run, they belong separately. And this is no longer a, a world of conglomerates. This is no longer a world where GE uses all of these different businesses to smooth out earnings. Ha ha, by the way, maybe because some of them weren't so good back in the day. Um, I think the accountability here is very important. I think the technologies in these businesses are changing enough. Um, and I think the core customer base, especially uh, in, in their aviation business, I mean, they, they, they are serving some of the biggest, most important companies in the world. Uh, I like this move. I think some of the parts it helps. I think these companies can be better capitalized than the mothership. Uh, for a move, though, that is meant to unlock value in the stock, the stock finished up by only 2.7 percent, which doesn't seem like a big move considering a, a massive um, and a real fundamental change to the way it operates. Karen, I wonder what your take is on that. Well, I guess the market was down a couple hundred or didn't close there. So at one point it was up like six bucks. But also, as you pointed out, this isn't going to happen right away. 
going to happen in stages, the last stage of which will be 2024. So it's a little ways off, but I do think they're really doing the right thing. And to Tim's point, they're sort of dismantling the, you know, GE used to do everything right. And that hasn't been the way for a long, long time. So I think sort of, you know, empire building is kind of over. And as Culp said, you know, you're providing incentives for those who run specific industries. And that makes it clear the capital allocation is that you're going to have more flexibility there. The other thing is you're going to have things trade at better multiples, I think. So, you know, aviation alone, I think, will trade better, better than all of them blended together. And they tend to sort of trade near the worst one. And the other thing is buyers who want to own GE Aviation. Now they have so much other stuff that they're buying alongside with it. It's a little noisy. So I think this is actually a very good idea. And I think he's done a tremendous job on the snark thing, though. I do think that reverse split was, come on, that's that was. Well, now that's out there, you, you can't actually take that back at all. So, <laughs> um, Dan, I wonder what, you, what your your take is on the GE news in, in relationship to where we are in the markets. I mean, does this signify anything about wh- where we are in the cycle? Yeah, I think it's fair to say that you generally don't see these sorts of things at bottoms in markets. You see them closer to tops, right? Because managers think it's a better opportunity to kind of realize that value near term. And these guys just said, well, it closed on the lows here. Well, people like, no, it's not going to happen for a while. And I think if you look at a five-year chart of GE and you look at this precipitous drop it had in late 2018, and I know the market dropped um, pretty hard back then, but that's when Culp took over. The stock is probably up maybe 10, 13% from then. It's really done nothing for a very long time. It's had, um, you know, a couple big peak to trough declines. It's made it back. I think the price action this year um, was pretty interesting. Maybe it signals to Culp and they know their big investors very well, other than Tim, um, that they're on board for this sort of thing. They probably floated that trial balloon. And the fact that stock has gone sideways here after a big run in late last year, maybe it's the time to do it. But again, it doesn't seem like the sort of thing on a macro level that you see too much um, at the lows in markets. You see them gradually more towards the highs. Yeah, Tryon, by the way, the activist investor has been in on this since 2015 or so, and and they're behind this split all the way. Um, Guy, this is, I mean, this is a a remarkable and historic change to General Electric. Once upon a time, it was thought that there were synergies between businesses, maybe even power, like the turbine business and the aerospace business. And here we are saying, you know what? No, that logic was, was flawed, or maybe it's just flawed today. Yeah, it's fascinating. Somebody will do, you probably should do a documentary on the rise and fall of General Electric, because in my opinion, you know, Karen said something interesting that I sort of agree with. You know, there was a time when GE did everything right. I think Mm -hmm. I would put it as there was a time when everybody perceived that GE was doing everything right. And although Jeff Immel takes a lot of the blame for this, the seeds for the demise of GE were sown long before that. And I think we really learned the hard lessons in 08 and 09. That's for an entirely different show. In terms of what this means for the stock, I've said this for a while, you know, maybe you get another bounce here in GE, but the much better company for the last 20 years, literally, has been Honeywell. And Honeywell continues to grind higher within a whisper of its all-time high. And that's where the, that's the place to be. It's just a far better run company uh, for the last literally 20 years. All right, coming up, a big breakout in the small cap. So can the climb continue? We're going to go off the charts next to find out. Plus, Tesla tanks. Shares of the EV maker hitting the skids, inking their worst days in September of last year. So what's next for the stock? Fast Money's back in two.
Welcome back to Fast Stocks. Pulling back from all-time highs today as the S&P 500 posts its first loss in nine sessions. Despite the drop, our next guest says there is one area of the market absolutely bursting with upside potential. Let's go off the charts with Stratega's head of technical and macro research, Chris Verone. Chris, what are you seeing in the charts? Hey, Melissa, yeah, I think small caps are still really interesting here as we look forward to the end of 21 and into 22. Now, remember, Russell 2000 was up 140% off the March 2020 lows, and then it got stuck, and it got stuck for about 10 months. So if we bring up our first chart here, what we see is that range that Russell 2 has been in really for the better part of the year. It peaked in March, and we've been waiting for resolution. And you know what? We've got it. This has been a decisive breakout above 2375 for Russell 2. But most importantly for us, it's doing it with an expanding new high list. The percentage stocks making new highs within the Russell 2 it's something like 30% this week. Historically, when you get that big expansion in new highs, the forward returns, particularly over the next three and six months, tend to be better than what the historical averages are. So we like the move with small caps. We like that it's doing it with good breath uh, as well. If you go to our second chart, and I'll just show you here, this might be self-evident, but with small caps breaking out of this range, they are now starting to outperform large. I think this is a long time coming. They consolidated for much of the year, but this is about a four or five month relative high for Russell 2 versus S&P. And it really brings us to our third chart here, which is the idea that this is the sweet spot of the calendar for small versus large. If you look at it historically, really over the last 40 years, let's call it from November until about March is historically when you've seen the bulk of small cap leadership. Now, the question we want to ask ourselves is within Russell 2, where are the best areas to find strength? And we'll start with the semis here and the resolution in the semiconductors, many of which corrected pretty meaningfully over the spring and summer, I think is a very important story. And I think from a macro perspective, the fact that you've seen all these small and mid-cap semiconductors break out here over the last several weeks is a hint or is the market's hint that maybe some of these supply chain issues are starting to ease. So we like that message uh, from the semis. And then the financials uh, here as well, our last chart, this is the percent of financials within the Russell 2000 that are making new highs. Again, we've seen that data swell. So an expanding new high list for the Russell 2000 broadly, but we see it with semis, we see it with financials. I think the broader macro message here is it's hard to say the economy is slowing when you have small caps, financials, semiconductors, particularly down the cap scale, acting as well as they are. Chris, uh, it's Tim. Fascinating work. That was going to be my point. And so let's go to the mosaic ultimately that's being painted as it relates to also transports and industrials. And and if you think about it, um, I've always seen the correlation between small cap and economic growth. And that's what you're describing here. Can you talk about uh, also how this plays into two big sectors that at one point six weeks ago looked like they were rolling over as yields got a lot higher? Tim, great point. I mean, I think this improvement in the big cap industrials and the small cap industrials over the last several weeks is another arrow in the quiver of this story that economic growth is reaccelerating here. And we went through a pretty punky, you know, one or two quarters where growth slowed. And whether it was supply chain induced or China induced, I think the message of the market right now, and, that, and that's what we care about. It's not my opinion. It's the market's opinion. And the opinion of the market here with small caps, industrials, semis, financials, discretionary getting better, I think is one of economic growth reaccelerating here. Look at some of these bellwether industrials. You mentioned GE before. Great chart. But look at Parker Hannifin. Look at ITW. This is a really compelling story. 
the message of the markets, but not the message of the bond markets. And I understand a lot of where the 10-year yield has to do with positioning, Chris, but I'm wondering what you see in the charts here in terms of where it should be going. Yeah, I think this low 140, kind of mid-135 neighborhood is going to be a big test for yields. Now, we did some work on this this morning, and we shared with clients, I think, a very important revelation. You know, we're, we're 20 months off the March 2020 lows. It, it, that is not an unusual point for the curve to actually start to flatten. The curve doesn't steepen indefinitely. And we looked historically over the last really 40 years, it's about 17, 18, 19 months off of a market low where you actually tend to see the curve flat. Now, that doesn't mean recession. It just means that transition more from early cycle to mid-cycle. That's what I think we're in. Groups like industrial, semis, financials are more mid-cycle groups anyway. All right, Chris, great to see you. Thank you. Thank you. Chris Verone of Strategus. All right, so um, interesting world we live in, in which the markets, the equity markets, can be telegraphing a strong economy, and the bond market is telegraphing I don't know what it's telegraphing, a 1.43% guy. Neither do I. And, you know, real yields in this country have never been lower. It's really a fascinating take. And I said a couple months ago we played what's the most important chart you're looking at. And I said it was the Russell. I said you had this huge run-up into February of this year and then a subsequent sideways action in the IWM between 210 and 235. I actually thought it was going to break down. And here we are breaking through that 235 level. So, it's clearly signifying something. And now the question is, is the broader market going to pick up on that in terms of the S&P 500 and ratchet to, all, to, all, to new all-time highs? Uh, that was my take a while ago. It's my take probably now. The, the IWM is a barometer for everything. All right. Coming up, a major roadblock for Tesla as shares continue to slide. The stock dropping nearly 12 percent today. So is the worst over. The traders break down the move next, plus Disney earnings on deck. So will there be a bit of magic in this report? We're breaking down what options traders are seeing. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out shares of Tesla sinking nearly 12% today. It's worst day since September 2020. The stock is down 16% since Elon Musk asked the Twitterverse over the weekend if he should sell a tenth of his stock. Um, news today that Kimball Musk, his brother, also um, filed to sell shares the day before that Twitter poll. So, Karen, I'm just wondering, there's, I mean, there's a lot of things swirling around this one. Um, what do you make of this continued move lower? Mm-hmm. Well, the Michael Burry thing was interesting as well. I guess, you know, wondering if this was necessary sales versus a a margin loan. Uh, Also, uh, Musk brings up himself the idea of taxes and is he going to have to pay taxes? And so he's got to doesn't have liquidity other than stock. So he's got to sell. I don't really think of it as I mean, the stock also has run up a lot. I think to me it was more about taxes and wanting to make that statement but um, and it being worth, you know, that much money, whatever it is, three hundred billion dollars. So I, I don't know. I don't think it's I don't think it's his commentary on, you know, Tesla's not going gangbusters. Maybe it's his commentary on valuation. But his guy always likes to point out, I think he said it was overvalued at four hundred, something like that. <laughs> That's true, too. But I mean, what what Elon <laughs> Musk is is maybe thinking about in terms of tax bills and, and taxes, possibly going up next year and where the markets are. I mean, this could be a statement or interpreted as a statement on, on markets in general and valuations and where we're going in terms of tax policy as a nation next year, Dan. 
They could. I think it's total BS, Mel. I mean, you think about this. This stock, no, this stock lost $150 billion in market cap because he decided to send a tweet out to his 63 million followers and see whether or not he should sell stock for whatever reason. And, you know, that's just not cool. It's just not. Because, you know what? We've been talking about on this show, this company was literally, he had handshake deals on three times over the last 10 years to sell this company because in two instances, they couldn't make payroll. Okay? So they should have been selling stock, not worried about his personal tax bill, and then put money on their balance sheet, okay, so that they can survive the next crisis that they have. And here's the other thing. In a week, we just started the show talking about Rivian, maybe having a 60 70 $80 billion market cap. Don't you think that would have been good for Tesla's valuation, a, a good reflection, except for the fact now the stock's down 17% this week because of his tweet. So to me, not cool. Coming up. Wait, wait, can I respond to that? Okay, yeah, respond, Karen. <laughs> Very quick. Eight times they have sold equity and they've sold converts. So it's not like they haven't tapped the markets. I think they've done a great job. The company I'm talking about tapping the markets. Okay. So okay. they well, don't Karen, need the money month, right now. Yeah. Okay, I understand. If, can, yeah. can, can I also insert one more thing? And then I know the producer, Mike, poor Michael's like, rap, 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 rap. But, <laughs> I mean, if, if there is a tax on unrealized gains, imagine what CEOs and directors and people who own massive shares of companies will do when they have to pay that tax bill, too, because a lot of them are cash poor, but, but actually rich because of their assets. And so if you think that's not cool, this could happen. This thing that's not cool could be magnified across the market here. Dan, I don't know if that was your underlying Mel, point or if you're just saying Ford, it's not cool. I'll bet you my Ford Mustang Mach-E, there's never going to be a tax on unrealized capital Yeah, gains. I know. That's probably not going to happen, but okay, just, just saying. All right. Coming up, Disney on deck, the media giant report. And I don't want that car, by the way. I have no place to park it. The media giant reporting results tomorrow after the close. You've got your setup straight ahead. Do not go anywhere. You're watching Fast Money live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. Back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. We're looking ahead to a major earnings report after the bell tomorrow. Disney is on deck and options traders are conflicted over whether or not the entertainment giant can deliver some magic. Mike Co joins us with the action. Mike. Hi there. Yeah. So in Disney, we saw calls outpacing puts by about 2.6 to 1 today, although it should be said that that's about average over the course of the last 20 trading days or so. Right now, the options markets are implying a move of about 4.7%, higher or lower. That also is in line with the 4% or so that the company has averaged over the past eight reported quarters. And the most active options were the weekly 180 strike calls. We saw over 8,500 of those trade for about $2.25 a piece. Most of those were being bought. Buyers of those calls are obviously betting that the stock will move at least that implied move to the upside by the end of the week. Although I should say that a lot of the other call activity we saw, including the December 190s, were actually sellers. So sellers of those calls are betting that if it move, it will be limited to about 8.5%. That could be a function of the fact that right now, at about 35 times earnings, the company is trading richer than its historical average. All right. Thanks for that, Mike. For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Up next, Final Trades. Final Trade Time, Tim. An old friend, Mattel, Barbie is back and a break above 23 and you're out of an eight-year downtrend, Mattel. Karen. 
Yes, strong home builders today, but I like Zillow in their new asset light slim down structure. Letter Z. Dan. Yeah, let's take a crack on Twitter using a 50 stop to the downside. Guy. I one of the, one of those R2 D2 trucks that Dan's buying. I can't, I can't wait. I'm so excited. Uh, Holly Frontier coming off a great quarter a week or so ago. Thanks for watching Fast Money. See you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now.